Well, turn with me, uh, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're on page 1413, if you're using one of our Bibles. If you're a guest with us, we welcome you. We're really glad that you're here. It's our practice to pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it. And we're in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Um, we were in this passage last week. And we touched on a concept, a word that's in the scripture and a, and a concept that that word tries to communicate that's very important. And I thought I'd do something a little different this morning. It's, I'm going to take that word and that idea and I'm, I'm going to look at the other places in the New Testament where that uh, concept is talked about. So I'll be not just, I'll be bouncing out of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, looking at this topic. And the topic is that of contentment. We see it in verse 6 through 8. It says here, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. It's interesting, this, this passage uh, breaks down for us, it says, especially there in verse 8, is that if we have food, okay, and if we have covering, and that word covering would count for uh, clothes as well as a house. So it's, it's, it's something to protect us from the elements. And uh, living here in the northeast, we're glad about that, right? So, um, so the food and covering, if we have that, we're supposed to be content. That's the, the bare minimum, and that's what we should be content with. Now, if you're like me, um, you know, I read that, and um, quite frankly, I, I don't like it. Does that surprise you, your pastors? I'm just being honest. I mean, isn't there something inside of you that, you know, you read that and you think, okay, uh, but I think I'd like more than that. <laughs> I'd like a little more than the bare minimum anyway. There's something in me that, that <clears throat> resists this message coming up from this verse. If we have food and covering, that's, that's all I'm supposed to be content with, nothing more. But then I wonder that initial reaction. It's always good to note that when you read something in the scripture and you don't like it, that's a good, a good little flag. God's waving a little flag in front of you and saying, okay, stop and think. What is the scripture saying and what is my life saying? Do I really understand what this means about being content, about being content? Or perhaps I'm importing into this verse a concept that I have about contentment that maybe the word doesn't actually mean. Is it, is it that I just acquiesce to whatever happens around me? That's what contentment means or just some kind of fatalism, whatever happens, happens or to have a, Justification for a lack of personal industry and working hard. Is that what contentment means? Or maybe it means something a little different. But whatever it is, it's very important. Because you see there again at verse 6, it says, Now godliness, this way of life, as we talked about last week, this way of life that reflects God's presence in, my, in all of my relationships and my thinking uh, in every part of my life, godliness is a means of great gain, it says, when it's accompanied by contentment. 
And then he infers, he refers to eternity there in verse 8, that there's going to be a time, well, in verse 7, that there's going to be a time where we leave this world and contentment is somehow linked with that all going okay when it's my time to leave this world. So this is important. So I want to understand what biblical contentment is, and I want to bring my life into conformity with that. And so what I'd like to do uh, in our time this morning is to, Ask and try to answer quickly six important questions concerning biblical contentment. And I'm for these six questions and these six answers. I'm going to go to six different places in the Bible. Um, And as we do that, uh, I trust that God will speak to us. Turn back a few pages to Philippians. We'll look at Philippians chapter 4. It's on page 1398. I'm going to spend a little more time on this first question and answer because it's foundational for the others. And this question in Philippians 4, beginning at verse 10, is what, what is biblical contentment? <clears throat> what exactly is that? Well, Philippians 4 says, <clears throat> But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content, there's that word, in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, if you look at verse 11 again, you see that word content. It says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. What was happening here is that Paul was not among the Philippians at this point. He was somewhere else, and they had gathered up a gift and sent it to him. And he had received this gift, and it was helping him. And so he, part of his letter back to the Philippians was a, he was thanking them for this gift, but also relaying to them, teaching them from this experience, something that he felt they needed to learn, and he had learned himself. And that had to do with, with contentment. And there's an interesting, uh, interesting observation about this word content in the original language of Greek, that the Bible, original in the sense that the New Testament was written in it. It can also be translated self-sufficient. And in some places it is translated that way, self-sufficient. So in a sense, Paul was saying, I've learned to be self-sufficient in whatever circumstances I am. Back then, uh, you, may have heard that there was this group of philosophers, Greek philosophers, called the Stoics. And in Stoic philosophy, they used this word, and Paul undoubtedly knew about that. The Stoics tried to say that their happiness was not dependent upon their outward circumstances or their possessions. And they said that they possessed everything within themselves to, that they needed in order to be happy. They were self-sufficient. And so there's that idea there floating around in Paul's day of self-sufficiency being contentment. But there's also the kind of the emotional part of that, that um, they're, they're just saying that my having things or my not having things 
That's not going to change my happiness. I'm going to be happy regardless of that. And there's a lot of that is true, and it's part of what Paul is saying with one important difference that I'll point out in just a moment. But they're basically saying, and the Bible word is saying that contentment means that I have the resources, and I recognize that I have the resources in me to do what I need to do and to be what I need to be. That's what contentment is. But look at verse 13 where Paul ends up. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And in some translations, it, it puts the word Christ there. I can do all things through, through Christ. That's who it's speaking of, who strengthens me. It's interesting. Paul fills out this word that the Stoics used about contentment and about being sufficient within themselves. He fills it out in a Christian sense. And he says, yes. As a Christian, I do have the resources inside of me to be able to do whatever I need to do and be whatever I need to be. The resources are in me, but the resources are not of me. They're in me, but they're not from me. The Stoics said it was some kind of self-will, some kind of, you know, get your willpower up strong enough. It was your own resources that enabled you to be immune to your circumstances. Paul's not saying that. He's saying, you're right, Stoic. The resources are in you, but they're not of you. They are all wrapped up in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And he, by the Holy Spirit, is in you, and he is all of the resources that you need to be content Earlier in this book, in in chapter 1, verse 21, uh, uh, Paul said that, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When my life is wrapped up in Christ, I have in him everything I need to be what I need to be and to do what I need to do, no matter what the circumstances are. God has a way of teaching us that in our lives. I remember uh, in one period in the first village where we lived among the Sandawi people. So that we lived in two. And in the first one, it's kind of fun. God has a sense of humor, I think. He must smile at us at times. We picked this village to, to, to live, in, live in, to be the first place. And one of the reasons we picked it is that they had a uh, water pump. So water was available in the village. <clears throat> That was really funny uh, because we got there and we didn't always have water. Um, I remember especially one time the uh, the water pump, which was actually it was actually a pump outside of the village that was connected to a, a water trough that their goats and their cows used. That's where we got our water. We'd like kind of hook a pipe in it pump the water into barrels in the back of my pickup truck, then drive them back home and, and put them in another tank. And that's, what we, that's how we got our water. We brushed our teeth in the same place the cows did. Um, we tried to get the water before it got in the trough. You know, that's what we did. But this thing uh, would often break. And I remember this one stretch of time where, where we basically, we were out of water. The whole village was out of water. And for a stretch of days, we uh, had a five-gallon bucket of water a day. That's what we had. So our whole family, there were five of us, 
And oh, did I forget to mention that two of them were in diapers. And, you know, you're out in the bush. There ain't no place for disposable diapers. There's no such thing. So we got two in cloth diapers. There are three other people. Five-gallon bucket of water a day for baths, cooking and drinking, and taking care of those diapers. Yeah, somebody's laughing. I like that. And so for a time we lived with, well, we had food, right? And we had, we had covering, and God was going to see whether we were going to be content. And, you know, my contentment and what God was teaching me in those days didn't mean that I had then a lack of initiative to try to change and make the situation better, both for myself and for the village. We wanted to make it better. But in that situation, was I grumpy? I mean, I stank, but did my attitude stink? <laughs> when you got five gallons, you just don't take baths as often. You know? um, so the, thing, the question is, what kind of person was I in that? Was I out of sorts? Was I resentful? Was I angry and frustrated? Or was I, as it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, was I a person that exhibited the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Wait a minute, joy. Joy, it says, is a fruit of the Spirit. Amen? It's not a fruit of my circumstances, which is so much and so often the way we look at it. I have to have that in order to be joyful. But God says, no, you have to have the spirit of God in you. And with him in you, you can be content. You can be self-sufficient. You can have, you have everything that you need to do what you need to do and to be what you need to be. Well, God taught Paul too. look it back at verse 11. It's very interesting here. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And then um, in verse 12, he uses an interesting word. He says halfway through, it says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of. I have learned the secret of. Paul um, learned this. First of all, there's an encouragement here is that the Apostle Paul didn't always have it right. He wasn't always content. God worked in his life and taught him and he became content. That's an encouragement to us. But there's something about this in verse 12 where it says, I have learned the secret of... He, he took a word that was used in those days from some of the mystery religions about being initiated into their religion. And he, he grabbed that word and used it here. He, he, he could actually literally say, I have been initiated into living without and living with. And in the midst of all of that, I've learned. I've learned to be content. But the interesting thing about this being initiated into is that Paul, uh, it was done to him. It's a passive word. It's not an active word. And so what Paul is saying is, is that somebody else initiated me into 
only having five gallons of water a day. And somebody else initiated me into having all the water I needed. And who was that somebody else? That somebody else was God. Paul didn't walk around and say, you know, I think I'm going to do without just to see if I can be content. No, God did this in his life. God did this. And so it is with you and I. God works in our lives. He gives and he takes away. He gives and he takes away. And he works in our lives to teach us and to help us so that we learn to be content. And part of our learning, as Paul learned, is a, is a yielding to what God has for us. That as he works in our lives and brings into our lives circumstances that we don't like, we yield to, to him. And we say, Lord, I want to learn whatever it is you're trying to teach me in this. And we walk forward and he teaches us just as the Apostle Paul, he teaches us. So what is biblical contentment? It is realizing that you have within yourself, in Jesus Christ, you have all that you need. You have all that you need to do what you need to do and to be what you need to be. And of course, in that, there is a great lesson having been learned by Paul and yourself and myself. And that is the difference between what we need and what we want. Amen. We want more than we need. And God sometimes blesses us and gives us lots more than we need. But sometimes in his teaching process, he reduces those blessings to teach us and to help us remember the difference between what we need and what we want. But we have within us everything that we actually need to to be able to do what we need to do. Maybe not what we want to do, but what we need to do and to be what we need to be. Now, second question. You have to go to the book of Hebrews for this, chapter 13. What does a lack of contentment mean about me? This is an amazing verse, Hebrews 13, verse 5. It's on page 1433. What does a lack of contentment mean about me? If I'm not content, well, let's read this, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself had says, has said, I will never, leave, never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? You notice here in this verse that there's a contrast between uh, the love of money and money and the Lord. And who is the person is putting their trust in either money or in the Lord. He says in verse five, you've got to get rid of the love of money. Be content with what you have. But why? He says, because he himself, it's God, he himself. The focus is now t- taken off of money and put in being put on God he himself has said I will never forsake you I will never desert you the contrast is being made here between our trust in money and our trust in God and then it says in verse 6 so that we may confidently say the Lord is my helper you see a lack of contentment in me 
says that I am denying God's presence in my life and his care of me. When I'm not content, I'm saying that God, you're, you're not paying attention to me. And your care for me is deficient. That's what we're doing when we're not content. In Psalm 73, we see the great example of the psalmist there where he says, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. He's, He's filled up with God and he's saying, "If when I have you, God, I have enough. I can get or I can lose, but I have you. And later in verse 28, he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. That's contentment. I have God near me. He's taking care of me. I'm all right. But a lack of contentment means I'm denying that he's with me and I'm denying that he's caring for me. Now, I could use a lot of examples I could talk about cars or clothes or things or uh, 401ks. I could talk about a lot of things, but I'll just talk about a car. I'm going to use a car as an example. You've got this car. You drive this car every day. And you're basically happy with it. You were happy with it when you bought it. <clears throat> but something's happened inside your life and in your mind. And, and uh, you've begun to notice what some other people drive. And some of them are really nice. Probably the advertisements on television have helped us a little bit. And you've noticed that these other cars do some things that yours don't and drive a little different than yours does. And, and now you're looking at these cars every day you're driving to work or wherever you're going. And you're looking at cars that go by and saying, gee, I'd, I'd like one of those. And gee, I'd, I'd like one of those. And man, that must be nice to have one of those but your circumstances are such that you cannot buy one but you're wishing that you could and you know what's interesting that you know what happens don't you no no, nobody wants to say yes because you you start to not like your own car now what you're trying you know you get in you think this is this is really not that great of a car you know it rattles it squeaks It can't go fast like I'd like to. And you're driving along and now you're not happy with what you've got. And you're looking out the window at everything else that passes by and wishing you had it. And then God gets a hold of your life and you repent. Say, Lord, forgive me. Because what I'm saying with this is, is that you aren't near me and you aren't caring for me. And that's not right, God. You are with me and you do care for me. And in your sovereignty and in this place in my life, this is the car you've given me. So thank you, Lord. Forgive me for that. You know, two things happen when you do that. Number one, you stop looking at the other cars so much. And number two is you realize this car is pretty good, right? Now, what happened? Did the car change? It's the same car. The thing that's changing is your heart goes back and forth. Your heart is going back and forth. And my friends, this happens with houses. It happens with anything. I just used a car as an example. When you put your focus on God and you own him as all that you need, then God works in your heart and you see what you have in a sweeter way than you saw before and you're unfrustrated by your discontentment and you've put aside 
This declaration of yours that God is not with me and he is not caring for me. That's why I'm discontent. Third question. What does contentment result in? Well, it results in a lot, but let me point one out to you, and that's in 2 Corinthians. So turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 6, page 1379. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now, this is interesting because in this passage, in most of the English translations, you're not going to find the word contentment, but you will find the word sufficiency, and it's the same word in the Greek. They're trying to figure out how exactly to say it. I'll begin reading at verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency, that's contentment there, having this, that's the biblical idea of contentment. I'm sufficient. I'm content. He's saying having this in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Friend, when you and I are content, when we see our sufficiency as being in the God who indwells us and not in the things that evade us, we are open to be a conduit of help to other people. But when we're not content, we're not noticing the needs of others or or being willing to reach out and touch other people. Contentment makes you able to help others other people i uh looked in vain this week um i i ran out of time to track down the exact details of the story i i know where 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 it is that i heard the story and i can find it uh if you want to know the details later but uh um i'll tell you the gist of the story but i don't remember the names and uh so i give you that caveat here but i heard the story of a man I believe it was kind of in the mid, mid 1950s, uh, Christian man. Uh, he had what he needed. He was making a living. And, and then if I understand, if I remember the story right, what happened was on a piece of property that he owned, um, an oil well was put up and it began to produce oil. Now this man was content. He, he, he was content in, in his life with Christ. At the same time this was happening, he became aware of a, a, a Bible school that was starting and had a, a big building project. And this, that there was a great need to get this Bible school up and running. And what this man did was, is that before the Lord, he said, well, I have everything I need. I'm going to take whatever this oil well produces. I'm just going to funnel it over there to this Bible school. And this went on for several years. The oil just kept coming. And he just, he didn't keep any of the money. He just put the money over because his other job had his needs met. He just kept funneling it over there. When all of the need of the Bible school was over, it stopped producing oil. (laughs) 
Now, let me, let me tell you something. Do you think that when that fellow died and went to heaven, he felt bad because he, he hadn't done something for himself with that money? You see, this man uh, knew what contentment could do for him. When you are content, you see needs in other people and you're free to be God's instrument in meeting needs in other people's lives. When we're not content, we're thinking about ourselves and we keep what comes our way. We we take it to ourselves rather than thinking about other people. Contentment results in a life that is rich in helping others. And oh, may the Lord teach us all to see that in our own lives. Fourth question. How serious is the opposite of contentment? I mean, like, okay, so maybe I'm not real high on the contentment scale, but how bad is that? I mean, how serious is a lack of contentment? Well, Look at Ephesians chapter 5. We look at another passage that mentions this. Ephesians chapter 5 beginning at verse 3. I'm going to read verse 3 and then 5 and 6. It's on page 1393. Paul says here, by the Spirit, but immorality or any impurity or greed, okay, here's One uncomfortable word that's used in the Bible that's the opposite of contentment, greed. Or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now skip to verse 5. For this you know with certainty. This is not a question. You know this with certainty. That no immoral or impure person... Or, and here comes another Bible word we don't like, but we need to hear it. Or covetous man. You're coveting what you don't have. You want what you don't have, and you're not happy as long as you don't have it. That's That's covetousness. Who is an idolater. Nobody like that has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is amazing. This is saying that covetousness is idolatry. And it's so very true. You see, you see, covetousness is, is an extension, you see, of the denial of God's nearness and of his care for me. Just like we've already seen. A lack of contentment means that I'm denying that God actually is with me and he's actually caring for me. I, and that's what covetousness is. And covetousness is also a transference of your trust. You're trusting that thing over there instead of God. And that's, that's why God calls it idolatry. It's idolatry. And no idol worshiper inherits the kingdom of God. And so people like us, we can say with our lips, I believe in God. But with our life, we're saying, I trust in money. And that person doesn't go to heaven. And that is exactly how serious this issue is. We can't look at this issue as something negotiable. Do you want to be a Christian? Then you must throw away your idols. Throw them down. I'm not going to trust in that. I'm going to trust in 
Christ. Amen? Amen. Now the fifth question. And I know some of you are probably thinking this. You're wondering this. And that's why I ask it. Is there no place for ambition in the Christian life? Is, does this meaning, this, this teaching about contentment mean we are to have no ambition? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. It's on page 1376. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. There is a place for ambition in the Christian life. And it's, it's of course, we're not surprised by this. It's a little different than a non-Christian's ambition. Verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent. And by, now, by that, he means in the context, he means whether we're at home in the body or absent from the body. In other words, whether we're alive here on earth or we've died, he's saying we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Yeah, there's a place for ambition in our life. Our overriding ambition here is to be pleasing to God and to have a good judgment day. Right? I didn't hear anybody say right, but I'll keep talking. Now, I want to just say something here, and that is that we know that we, know, we don't earn our, our, we don't earn heaven. We don't earn our way into forgiveness with God. We know that. We know that it's Christ dying on the cross for us that takes away our guilt. And that we have forgiveness and an open walk with God because of Christ, not because of ourselves. And sometimes we have trouble in our minds then. Because that is true, we have trouble, a little trouble in our head, thinking, well then, what about these verses that talk about how God's going to call us to account for how we've lived? Because if I got forgiveness, maybe there's no calling to account. And I would say this, that I don't know exactly how it all fits together, okay? It's okay not to understand everything. But God teaches us that we have forgiveness of sins in Christ, but there is an accounting that we give to him of our life. Look at this passage. This is 2 Corinthians. This is Paul speaking to Christians. He's saying we all are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body while we're alive here according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Friends, friends, listen. There is a place for ambition in the Christian life. We want to live this life with everything we've got to please God. And as we're doing that, we're remembering that life goes on beyond the grave. It's not just about here. And, and, and things count to God that don't count to other people in this world that we rub shoulders with. And I'm going to live my life in light of that. And I'm going to try to please him with everything. And that includes whatever money <clears throat> he sends my way. I want to live in such a way that when I get to the end, he's, he's saying, good job, good job, good job. Amen? That's different than what financial advisors will tell you. They're not, not worried about that accountability, but we, we are. 
And we can live with him free, knowing that we're forgiven. And so with joy, we just go at life with everything we've got and do what we can. And as God opens up opportunities to us, we, we, we funnel money and we, we, just, we just look at money different because we've got eternity in view. And we want to please God with our life. Now, sixth and last question. How does our work fit into this picture? We're supposed to be content, which means that we recognize that we have within us the resources to do what we need to do and to be what we need to be. We, we know that. And we know that the opposite of contentment is, is idolatry and it, it's, it's wrong. It's a declaration that God isn't with me and he's not caring for me. We want none of that. And we know that, that if we live with contentment, we can become a channel of blessing to other people. Life becomes more fuller in that way. And we can be ambitious in our, in our, in our life here on earth. But then how does our work fit into this whole picture? Turn back to Proverbs, if you would. Proverbs chapter 10. It's on page 771. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs is so full of uh, God-given advice to us about our work. There is a definite connection between our work and our needs being met. Our work and what we have or don't have. It's in the scriptures. It's the way God has set things up. Verse 3, Proverbs 10, verse 3. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Now, you see in this passage that working to provide for yourself and to provide for your family is praised. The scripture praises that. The one who works diligently, the one who works wisely, takes care of himself and his family, or herself and her family, that, that person is praised. And the opposite that's a shame, it says there in verse, in verse 5. In Proverbs 28, 19, it says, He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. You want, you want plenty of poverty or do you want plenty of food? The scripture says, well, you get out there and till your land and you'll have the food instead of the poverty. But if you just go out and pursue empty pursuits, you're out there looking for the get, get rich quick stuff and the empty stuff. At, you're you're going to have poverty. There's a direct link between work and prosperity. And that link is a God-given link. And yet, as we, as we work and, and receive the benefits and the results of that work, we know that the scripture also teaches that God is the great giver. He is the great dispenser of blessing. The results are his. And we won't read the entire book of Job for this, but that's part of what Job is teaching us. Remember, Job was a righteous man and he did what was right. But for purposes 
unbeknownst to Job at the time, even though you reading, reading the book, you have the inside scoop, but Job didn't have the inside scoop. He, he, God removed blessings from him for a time, and then he gave blessing back. And that wasn't directly connected to how much he worked and how much he didn't work. So our job is to, is to work with all of our hearts, being responsible, being diligent, being wise. But as we do it, we have to be content with God and let him give or not give as he chooses. He gives. He takes away, Job said. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But there's a, f- a more fundamental motive to our work than providing for ourselves, although that's extremely important. But I want to just say this, that, and there's not enough time to go into all of this, but you go back into Genesis chapter 1, and you see that God put us here to work. Amen? He put us here to work. He, he put us on this earth to care for the earth in a way and to populate and care for the earth and to develop societies and, and everything. We were to do it all for his glory. That's what he put us here to do. And we don't have enough time this morning to, to, to explore how it is that each of your jobs are, relate to that first commission that God gave to Adam and Eve. But they do. Every honorable work relates back to there and you can find purpose in that in that work sin has come into the picture it's greatly complicated everything and made it hard and often it's made it very painful and yet our work is honorable in a bigger in a bigger picture but i won't go into all that but what i want to say this morning is this that if you can see that your work what God's called you to do, that your work is your expression back to God of who you are. Amen? It, your work is actually supposed to be your worship. Sometimes when we speak about worship, we do it ourselves a disservice when all we think that worship is, is when we're here singing together. That is it's very important but but the scripture teaches that as we go off into work every day what we do the way we use our life it's our expression back to god you created me you put me here you've saved me now today i'm just going to be worship to you in in my job in what i do with my life and you see when when that is able to push past the uncomfort and, uh, and the pain of the sinful place that we're living. The sin's complicated it. But if we can get past that and see that as I work every day, I'm doing this as worship to God. If that can be your motivation, you see, you'll find contentment fitting into the picture much easier. Because I'm just worshiping God with my life. And I'm content with him. And now my needs are being met. And God's doing even more than that. Often he gives, but sometimes he takes away, but he often gives. And what other needs are around me? You see, my life is different. Rather than seeing my job only as that which gets me money. But I see my job as my worship. And it's the, wor- the way I worship God way more than here in church. Amen? All week long, I worship him. 
All day long, I worship him. That's my job. And I come here then for just a little icing on the cake where we can sing together and praise him. But all week long, I'm worshiping, I'm worshiping, I'm worshiping. And that's how our work fits into this picture. Well, I've probably tried to do too much in one sermon. Talk about all of this, but I trust that somewhere in what we've said this morning, somewhere in this, God's spoken to you about something and nudged you. It may be that you yourself have realized that, you know what? I'm dangerously close to being an idolater. And you know what? This morning, you can just lay that aside. You can lay it aside. The interesting thing about what Paul said, he said, you know, I have learned to be content. Um, He went through a process to become content. But the fact of the matter is, the way he talked about it is, but he became content. Amen? We don't have to be in that process our whole life. We can learn. Let him teach us what he's teaching us. And maybe this morning is the morning that you need to just, before God, say, Lord, I'm done trying to learn it. I'm going to learn it this morning. I accept what you're doing in my life. I'm not going to be covetous anymore. And you are near me and you are caring for me. And from this day forward, that's the way I'm going to learn. You can make that this morning your decision. Let's pray. Father, for the sake of those who need this prayer, I pray this way and ask that all would just, in your heart, pray with me. Father, I ask your forgiveness for the discontent that has been in my life and the covetousness, I call it what it is. And I ask now, O Lord, for your forgiveness for that. And I say that from this day forward, O Lord, you are all that I need. Now, O Lord, fill me with your presence and fill me with the satisfaction of knowing your presence. And teach me more and more how your presence with me and your care for me is all I actually need. And O Lord, now, whether you give or take away, help me now with my life to live my whole life, every day of my life, as worship to you and free to be a conduit of blessing to others. Do that in our lives, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.